Hi, everyone. Today we'll be talking with Julie Vonnethet, the manager of La Bassa Wildlife Sanctuary, about some of the work she does and the importance of education when it comes to endangered species. We'll be releasing an episode in the coming weeks covering endangered species and what threats they face, and then getting into specifics by location. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. So our first question is, what is the purpose and the goals of the Wildlife Sanctuary and how did it get started? So basically we are a rescue rehabilitation and release center for uh, different species of wild animals that are victims of the illegal bush meat and pet trade in Liberia. And we also provide lifelong care to animals that, that, no, that can no longer be released. So that's basically what we do in a, in a nutshell. And we started in 2017. And so far, um, about 500, uh, 547 animals came in. And since today, uh, 273 animals have been released. So we released some more today. So we released nine animals today. What animals did you release today? Uh, three pythons, two crocodiles, and four turtles. That's really exciting. Are you so it's in La Bassa? Are you guys looking to expand it all in the future or expand your facilities? Well, we've already expanded a lot in just four years. So mm -hmm. we basically started with 10 enclosures and we have more than tripled in capacity in uh, four years. And we also have a clinic now and a nursery and an office and a pangolin room. And basically we are still expanding because we now have 88 monkeys and counting. And um yeah, the monkeys, they stay at the sanctuary for quite a long time because they have a very long rehabilitation process. And we constantly have to make available space for the monkeys. So we're always expanding. Yeah, wow, great to hear. Yeah, it, it is great. It's great, but it's also expensive. <laughs> Our next question is, what responsibilities do you all have or do you have in your position? And how did you end up there? So... I, start, I, was, I used to be um, a zookeeper at Antwerp Zoo, and I looked after the chimpanzees and the gorillas there, and I really liked my job, and I had amazing colleagues, um, but I wanted to do something more hands-on in conservation, and then I found this job that they were looking for someone to um, set up the first multi-species wildlife sanctuary in Liberia. And I was lucky enough to be selected for the job and that's how I ended up here. And so I started pretty much by myself. Um, yeah, where I had to do everything myself. And then I realized that I couldn't. So I had to get, we, we had to train um, local staff to help me because yeah, yeah I, cannot, I cannot do everything myself. And uh, so now we have, uh, it, now it's me and we have a vet on site also, and then five staff um, to help us out at the, at the sanctuary. And so for me, mainly I'm in charge of um, the office side of things. I need to do the fundraising. I need to um, plan the, the budgets and the reports and the uh, social media and the meetings and all the 
office stuff. It's pretty boring. But um, at the same time, I also help with the nursery. So I also do the, I help with the feeds, the also at night, because um, it is lethal if you have to do every night shift. So that's why we, we split, the, we split the night shifts. And so um, every other night it's my turn also. And uh, if there's a shortage in staff, uh, I also help out at the sanctuary. Uh, I also help feed the animals or I help uh, with bandage changes or um, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty much, I, I'm pretty much a multi, you know, I'm, I'm everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I, can be, I can be everywhere. So yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do. <laughs> I do. That's wild. So do you think you could tell us, um, as a follow-up to that, like, why did you choose this career? Because, of course, it starts from a passion for animals, um, but also because I, I just, um, I just wanted to help. Really, I, I just wanted to help, and um, there, there's a there's a lot of injustice in the world, and especially when it comes to animals and. Um, I don't have many talents, but this is something that I can help with. So I, I, this is why I wanted to do it. I just, I just, I studied zoology and, uh, and I'm also a vet nurse. So I just wanted to use my skills to help really. So yeah, it's, it's a very rewarding job to do. <laughs> yeah, it's hard and very frustrating, <laughs> but it's in the end, it's very rewarding. So it adds up. I just want to throw yeah. out there that based on your job description, it does sound like you have a lot of talents. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, no, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still learning a lot of things because like I said, I started this as a zookeeper. Um, I had very little experience in how to run a sanctuary. And basically I was just thrown in it and I have to wing it. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, I, I've, I've, let's just say that I've learned a lot over the years, <laughs> but I'm still learning every day. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine that you would continue to learn so many things when yeah. at a wildlife sanctuary. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But another question we have, because, you know, you're always learning so many things and there's so many new happenings at the sanctuary. Um, what does a typical day at the sanctuary look like if there even is a typical day? Well, there isn't. <laughs> there isn't a typical day. But anyway, we, we usually start, of course, it depends on it depends on, on the on the animals that need help, really. So we usually start around 8.30 till 6. That's when the staff is here. Um, so they do all the feeding, the cleaning, the babies, the enrichment, the um, uh, setting up of enclosures, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then, of course, before 8.30 and after 6, it's me and Haiti, the vet, who, um, who take over. So sometimes uh, at 8 uh, or at 10 or at 12 or at 4 a.m., um, animals will still need bottles, will still need checkups, will still need treatment, will still need to be looked after. Um, sometimes we know beforehand when an animal will come so we can get prepared. Uh, sometimes they just, they're just at our doorstep with a monkey on a rope. Um, there's always something there, there's, 
um, also sometimes animals can sometimes just get sick, can, can sometimes crash, can sometimes um, something might happen, an accident might happen. Um, yeah, we never really know what the day will bring really. And uh, a part of it, it's, it's fun because you don't really get into a routine, but at the same time, sometimes I wonder, oh, what will today bring? <laughs> and it, it makes me, you know, it, it, it scares me to get out of bed sometimes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's what a typical day at Libasa looks like. So you mentioned a lot of the internal stuff. So we were also wondering what sort of relationship does the sanctuary have with the community outside of the sanctuary? Well, we have to buy a lot of food. We now have uh, 120 something animals at the sanctuary and we need a lot of food. And we buy the food from local markets and we try to support local communities as much as we can. Um, the communities around the sanctuary know what we do, why we do it. Um, so yeah, we, we try to do a lot of awareness on what we do and why we do it, because of course it's not obvious to everybody uh, why we are here. And yeah, um, we still have a long way to go when it comes to awareness, but I think the community, the surrounding communities, uh, yeah, we, we, we try to support the local communities as much as we can. And how would you say the local community is important to you and your mission of conservation? Like, are you guys like kind of more hand in hand or are you, is the local community a little bit more separated? Well, we're not really, huh, we're not really hand in hand yet, but um, we, we will get there. Uh, in the end, we haven't been around for so long. We've only been around for four years and um the communities are, of course, very important to us because if everybody is aware of the law and if everybody is aware that um, the consumption of bushmeat is not the way forward, then we wouldn't have to exist. <laughs> we are actually working every day to be unemployed. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to be here. We don't want to have to rescue animals every day. If, if there was, uh, if we reached a point where no animals were being killed for bushmeat, well, then we can all go home. Uh, so yeah, the, the local communities are very important to us. And it's important that we work towards a point where we are hand in hand. Um, and we will try our very best to do that because we, yeah, we need them. We need them to, uh, to understand our mission. Yeah, I I think communities, you know, you always, you whenever you talk about conservation, you always think about the community too. Um, going a little off from that, what do you think is either the craziest or most exciting thing that has happened to you while you've been working there? Oh, <laughs> um, I would say the entire first year that I was here, was one crazy ride <laughs> because I was here all by myself and all the animals that came in, I had heard of them, but I had never looked after them because like I said, I come from a great ape background and uh, suddenly they give you a baby pangolin and a baby bushbuck and a baby poto and a bird of prey and their life is in your hand and you're responsible. <laughs> 
And unfortunately, a lot of animals come in injured also. And we've already had animals like pangolins or monkeys or uh, birds where you think, oh, they will be dead tomorrow. They are, they were in incredibly poor condition. They were injured. They were weak. They were dehydrated. They were basically on, on death's door. But then when they pull through, that's a, that's a bit of an adrenaline rush. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I would say the first year was wild and all the, all the firsts were, uh, were very, very crazy. So that, that kind of goes with what you were just talking about, but specifically, would you say that you have a best particular success story when that really resonates with you? That would have to, for, for me personally, that would have to be with the pangolin. So we've had a pangolin that came in and he had a snare still attached to his body. And <clears throat> sorry. And uh, the snare had made a cut in his uh, arm the elbow, uh, uh, the shoulder region. And it was a hole, it created a hole and it was full of maggots and his arm was literally hanging off. And uh, of course I'm here by myself, no clinic, no medical equipment, no nothing. And uh, anyway, with the help of um, Tiki Highwood Foundation in Zimbabwe, um, they are experts in, uh, in rescuing and rehabilitating pangolins. So I asked for their advice. And so day by day, he, he started to get a little better and I just treated the injury. And, and uh, after a while, I noticed that he was starting to use his arm again. So at the first two days, he was dragging his arm across the floor uh, because it was literally hanging off. And so after a while, I noticed that he wanted to uh, start using his arm again. And uh, so I thought to myself, okay, from now on, I will stop helping you. If you want to climb, well, you're going to have to try for yourself. If you want to dig, you're going to have to try for yourself. And it was almost like physiotherapy for pangolins. So week after week, the arm was uh, getting better and better. And the arm, it, it was never 100% back to the way it was. But after eight weeks, he was able to walk, dig and climb with that arm. And uh, we were able to release him. That's one of the stories that I will forever remember. And then we also had a pangolin that um, had uh, neurological damage. And um, that pangolin, he had no clue what was up or down or left or right. And um, we had to force feed him with a syringe for at least four weeks, day and night. Uh, until he, you know, with medication and treatment and stuff, um, the inflammation of his nerves improved and uh, he was able to eat by himself again. And then we were also able to release that one. So, yeah, like I said, sometimes animals are in a very bad condition and you think, oh, they will probably not make it, but then you pull through and, and miracles happen anyway. So those are the ones that, that will always be with you for life. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> sort of changing topic a little bit. Sudi Manga Beats, you have a project going with that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What goals you have for that? What is a Sudi Manga Bee? Yes, a Sudi Manga Bee is uh, it's a, it's a monkey. It's a, a grayish 
brownish uh, monkey. And it's, um, unfortunately, it's a very popular pet here in Liberia. So a lot of people here keep monkeys as pets. And so what happens is, not just for sutimangabees, but basically for any monkey, the, the parents are killed for bushmeat. So the parents are killed for consumption. And then when there's a baby still attached to the mother, or when there's a baby around its mother, uh, that's a, a bonus that people can sell and to make extra money out of. And so that's why a lot of people here have monkeys as pets. But monkeys are protected by law in Liberia and you cannot keep them as pets. You cannot kill them. It's against the law. But so the most common monkey that is kept as a pet here is a sutimangabee. And the reason for that is because it's a very hardy species. They eat, uh, they don't have a very specific diet. They're pretty much omnivores and uh, it's a pretty hardy monkey. And uh, that's why people keep them here as pets. So now we have 58, uh, 51, sorry, 51 sutimangabees here at the sanctuary of all ages. And um, of course, our main mission is to release. Unfortunately, from all the animals that we've released so far, we have not released monkeys yet because monkeys, they have a very long childhood. And the reason for that is because they have so much to learn from their mothers. They need to learn what to eat, what not to eat, the, which food that grows on which trees, the seasons of the forest, the dangers of the forest. They have to learn about group life, group structure, a lot to learn. And that's why they have a long childhood. But the monkeys at the sanctuary, they're all orphans. They don't have a mother to learn from. That's a problem. So what we want to do is we have one group of 18 sutis that are older. I would say about four, four or five years, six maybe, some. And um, we would like to do what's, what is called a soft release. And a soft release means that you, you don't just throw them in the forest and wish them well. What you do is we want to build a pre-release enclosure somewhere in a protected area. We would like to do, of course, medical checkups at first. We would like to add collars to uh, four of the monkeys of the group. And then we would like to keep them in the pre-release enclosure for a few months so that they can get used to the area. And then after about four or five months, we will open the door. Technically, they will be free but we will still provide food for them twice a day for the first six months. We will have FDA rangers protecting them. We will have eco guards following them. And so the first six months, they don't have to worry about food and they can get to know the forest in their own time. After about six months, we feed them once a day to encourage them to go and find their own food. And then after another six months, we stop feeding them completely and we keep following them every day. And then when they see that they have established a territory that they can find their own food, they've been through two seasons in the forest. When we see that they can look after themselves, we consider them released and then we leave the forest. So that's a soft release. But unfortunately, these things cost a lot of money. And when you add everything up, it's about an $80,000 project. Um, so we've already raised some funds. So we've already raised funds uh, for the pre-release enclosure and the trackers. So we can get started with that. But um, we still have to look for a lot of funding. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so of course, education is you know really important when it comes to conservation and raising awareness about these things. So we have a few, we can transition to a few education related questions. Um, so I just have one kind of as a discussion question for you and ever, anyone here. What do you think the importance of a flagship species is and what role do like these well-known species play um, in, in conservation? It's true that when you take the, I would say iconic species like elephants, chimpanzees, lions, uh, when you protect these species and their habitats, you automatically protect all the other animals that are in it as well. So it's true that the, you know, the, the more popular species, uh, I, I would say, like chimpanzees or, or elephants or lions or rhinos, unfortunately, these animals are, are critically endangered. So that's the main reason why we should help them because they're critically endangered, but also because it draws people's attention. People know chimpanzees, people know elephants, people know about rhinos. So if it can help to, in turn, help all the other species that live in the same habitat, then it's true. We need to, we need to protect them. Um, but um, at the same time, all the lesser known species are also killed at a massive rate and might end up having the same fate or destiny like the critically endangered chimpanzees or the elephants. So these keystone species are very, very important, of course, but we have to make sure that other species don't go the same path along the way. And so we cannot forget about those species as well, um, because sometimes turtles um, can eat or amphibians or fish can even be a very good indicator of the health of a certain ecosystem uh, because they are usually the first ones to drop. Um, do you think that there's any way that these keystone species, you know, the ones that are very well known and popular and well loved, um, that there's a way that those can be used to give the lesser known species a platform? Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. Yes, it, it's true. It's true. Like chimpanzees, I mean, here in Liberia, I mean, they're, they're critically endangered. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, when you protect chimpanzees and their forests, you immediately protect all the animals we have here at the sanctuary. So absolutely. Yeah. If it can get people's attentions, of course. Specifically, could you talk about some of the maybe less well-known species that you might see at your sanctuary? Um, for example, the dwarf crocodile, it's a, it's a, it's one of the smallest crocodile species there is, um, but it's heavily poached and, uh, we've already, uh, released, well, since today, uh, 62. Uh, so that's one of the species that comes in a lot that nobody is aware of, or for example, a poto, um, which is a persimmon. Uh, we, it's um, yeah, it's 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 part of the primate family. It's not a monkey, but it's a it's a persimmon. So that's also a, a species that is fairly easy to catch because they're pretty slow. Um, then there's the timnay parrots, which uh, it, it people thought it used to be um, a subspecies of the African grey, but since a few years, it's uh, it's a, a 
completely separate species. Um, these are also heavily hunted and kept as pets here in Liberia. And then um, a lot of antelopes, blackback dikers, uh, Maxwell's dikers, a lot of bushbuck. Um, and then, of course, all the other monkey species, Campbell's monkey, Diana monkey, uh, green monkey. All these lesser known species are, are, are poached on a, on a massive scale. Pangolins, yeah. Okay, so these lesser known species, how do you find information on them? What do you recommend? Where do people look to try to find these species? Because if they're not big flagship species, often people necessarily just won't know they exist. Well, exactly, and that's uh, that's why we try to do um, we try to do awareness on our on our Facebook and Instagram page for what it's worth. But of course, there's always um, there's always Google and Google Scholar uh, to look up these species. Um, but we we always try to um, highlight these species on our on our social media so that people know that they exist. Uh, and for me, as for me personally. I had never seen these animals before in my life. And then I was lucky enough to have a big network of zookeepers from all around the world who could, who could help me in uh, how to rehabilitate these animals, how to feed them, how to raise them, how to treat them. So, um, but yeah, for me, honestly, I got most of my information through, um, through books and, and Google and then zoo colleagues um, so what are some ways that people can support the sanctuary and the work that you do? We have a, we have a website where people can donate and you can donate as little as $1. And it sounds very cliche, but it, it really is. Uh, it, every dollar helps and it, it goes towards the animals because we have to, to start with, we have a $2,000, a 2000 us dollar food bill every month to feed all the animals at the sanctuary. But it's not just the food and the salaries. Uh, it's also building enclosures, fixing enclosures. It's the milk formulas that, that are different for every species that I have to buy abroad. We need special milk for the antelopes. We need special milks for the civet, uh, civet the, the genets. Um, we need special pangolin milk. Uh, because like I said, all these animals come in as orphans. They all need their own type of milk. We need to buy a lot of milk for our baby monkeys. Uh, we need to buy medicine uh, for all these different types of animals because uh, you can't just use any drug on any animal. Uh, so all these things have to be purchased abroad. And then it's these stupid things like a new wheelbarrow, new brush new new sponges, new uh, uniforms for the staff, it's vaccines for the staff, it's new rain boots, new rain gear, uh, food bowls, water bowls, um, things that people don't think of, but that we need on a daily basis. And um, yeah, uh, basically people can support us through our website, but people can also help us by just sharing our posts and, and making the lesser species known. And, and sharing a post about a potu or a palm civet or a dwarf crocodile or a black bag diker, which is also helpful. I'd also like to point out on their website real quick, they do something similar to um, what the Cincinnati Zoo does. So if any of you guys have ever heard of the Adopt an Animal program at the zoo, they also have one, it says on their website here. 
Um, and I know that a lot of people I've talked to at the zoo are familiar with that. So that's another similarity and another way to help if any of the viewers are interested. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy the website is working because I had problems the past few days with the website and it's been up and running again since today. <laughs> so uh, we're back in business. <laughs> well, we're happy to hear that your website is back and up and running. Um, thank you for sharing some ways that we can help these endangered species through that website. And before we really wrap things up, we have one question, one more question for you. Um, the name of our podcast is Universal Impact of You. And we like to give people um, ways that they can know how to help out from home, whether that be the earth or animals. So do you have any advice for those that are trying to live more sustainably or that are trying to help out more endangered species around the world? Of course, you know, there's the, the, the things like use less plastic and, and, you know, try to go green and try to, you know, not to eat meat and all these things. Um, but when it comes to um, rescuing or, or saving species, I know that, for example, it's very difficult for people to be interested in um, saving, let's say, pangolins when pangolins don't occur in, the, in your country. Um, so I think what you can, like I said, what you can do is just help raise awareness on problems, even, all, even though they don't occur in your country. These past few years, there have been a lot of movements, good movements around the world for many different causes. And a lot of these causes might not occur in your country, but that doesn't mean that you cannot participate in the movement. So I would say, of course, there's these things, like I said, you can donate, you can, you can support whatever organization you like and, and try to do your bit for the planet. But if you cannot do any of these things, the least you can do is just share posts on social media and let other people know what's going on in the world, that there's a lot of injustice in the world that still needs to be solved. And just raise awareness, join the movement online and, and look what these things have led to so far uh, with all these different movements that have already existed. So uh, social media and sharing posts has a, can have a big impact on, on a lot of topics. So that's, that's definitely something that, that people can do. Hey, awesome. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Julie. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> thank well, you. Like you mentioned, anyone listening can find out more ways to support the sanctuary on their website, the labasawildlifesanctuary.org. Um, they're currently, yep. you know, collecting donations both for the sanctuary at large and specifically the Sudi Mangabe project. Um, yep. Yeah, it's also important to remember that some of the most important action you can do is listen and learn. So I encourage you all to go uh, learn more about the work that the sanctuary does on their website or their social media and continue to educate yourself about endangered species. Um, so thank you again, Julie, for taking the time to come out with us today. It was a really big, great pleasure. No problem. No problem. Pleasure was all mine. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>